Welcome to the MEP Podcast, where I'll be exploring the intersection of sport and spirituality through a variety of practices that ultimately invite us to learn, grow, and connect. I believe that through movement and mindfulness, we can create an awareness within that will allow us to integrate as individuals and connect more deeply to our mind, body, and spirit, together navigating a way to the way. On this episode of the podcast, I have a chat with George McPherson. He was on the podcast about a year and a half ago, and it's been a little while since we caught up. And I've personally had some recent experiences with sound and singing that have been really profound. And I got super curious to ask him some questions and thought I might as well record it. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. We dive into all things sound, sound healing, um, how sound from outside of us can be different from sound created from within us. George also catches us up on his transition completely out of the PR world and into working with a studio in New York uh, in a new role, um, facilitating sound and programming and and all things like that. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I love speaking with George. It's great to ask him some questions that I had recently come to my mind and uh, get his insight and hear his experience. So enjoy this one. All right, George, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a little while and I think we've probably both lived some rich, interesting life in the meantime. (laughs) I would love to uh, kind of hear how you're doing, maybe where you are, because I think you were in Mexico last time we spoke on the on the podcast, and um, you can maybe share about uh, your recent news or announcement career-wise, too. Hmm. Yeah, well, I'm not in Mexico City this time. Uh, I was thinking how long ago it was that we spoke, and it was like a year and a half ago, maybe September 2021. And so much has changed since then. And it's interesting because I literally just got back from England uh, when I was in Mexico City when we last spoke. And I just got back from England now when we're speaking again. And each of those times has been so indicative of uh, a transition period for me. And that first time was kind of coming out of part of COVID limitations and lockdown. And this time has been moving into a new phase of my career, but also, I suppose, how I see myself in the world. And I was tracking back through our conversation. I actually purposely didn't listen to it because I didn't want to give myself too many (laughs) stepping stones that would take this away from an organic conversation. But in 21, I completed my, you know, various different trainings with my teachers, David Shemesh, Alexander Tanous, and was beginning to delve into practicing as a, as a sound uh, meditation facilitator. And there was so much energy in that. And I was thinking to myself about the enthusiasm and um, excitement that goes along with uh, any new phase of your life, jumping into it and, uh, all of the naivety and innocence that goes with that. And I didn't want to listen to what I'd said because I like keep some of that childlike curiosity, right? That some of it feels bravely naive 
And, and yet in the last couple of years, so much has also come from not just the training <laughs> to be a sound practitioner and all of the work that I had done. And I was loosely, you know, getting to create for individuals and, and, and small groups back in, back in 2021. And now two years later and feeling into the work and the experience of bringing people together. Yes. Creating sound for people with people but sensing into a knowing and feeling in my body that it's so much more than that and that that can only come with experience. And again, I'll probably say in two years time, wow, you'd only just been doing it for a few years. And it's all such a journey and it's all a sense of remaining the student of the experience as opposed to holding myself up on this pedestal of now I'm a sound meditation practitioner. Um, so I'm constantly humbled by the lessons that that affords me. Um, and one of those experiences has, has been understanding my, my work ethic, <laughs> perhaps as Gabor Mate would refer to it, my addiction to work. And, and knowing there is something in that that both provides a motivation to keep creating and keep offering experiences for people um beginning to softly listen to there is more for me than than just creating sound meditation uh experiences every night of the week it can also be really draining mm -hmm. and <clears throat> so stepping into this new phase of my life I was able to begin working with a studio on the Upper East Side of New York a place called Sage and Sound um in October when they opened and so I've been getting up every Sunday morning to do these awakening sound meditations for the community uh, uh, up there and uh, as a result uh, space opened up in in the business and the organization <clears throat> to join them as a programming director uh, to work with all of their teachers and work with the leadership to to continue to build out what they've already put a lot of work into and um, I'll continue to teach sound there and other places around the city. Uh, but it's been a beautiful experience for myself to gracefully <laughs> say goodbye to 20 years of working in publicity and, and fashion. And I know you and I have quite a few parallels in that. And really begin to listen to what, sound meditation was taking me to and sensing that an opening uh was being created in sitting with sound myself listening patiently to what emerged and um i can say that for the last 10 years i've been looking for a way to not work in fashion <clears throat> and and for this to kind of present itself has has been a, a really lovely transition so far so yeah great well congratulations i'm excited for you and it sounds like a perfect opportunity for that transition thanks yeah i hope so so i guess what i want to ask you is um you know you mentioned creating sound teaching sound sound meditation so just like even just these like phrases, I would be curious to dive into a little bit more. 
Um, I guess when it comes to creating sound, that seems like the most um, sensical way to think about you with instruments in front of a group of people creating sound with this. How would, is that how you would describe it or is there something more? No, I mean, honestly, I, I, I sit with some of that myself often that, and I'm sure there'll be threads to this conversation that do get a little intellectual or spiritual woo-woo as someone might say but I really feel in this present moment that to simplify both the role and the phraseology and the invitation into the experiences of someone just allowing themselves to sit with sound fundamentally comes back to this place of creation and I will stop myself sometimes when I say I create sound for, because what I know now, <laughs> we're creating sound with, we're creating sound together. And so I'll talk about sound meditation, of course, and I'll talk about all of the beautiful elements that require deeper inquiry, but at its base level, uh, the place in which, uh, exploration opens up it it brings us back brings me back to the place of creativity and creation which is not so much about considering myself an artist or a musician but the ability to create sound and the humbling aspect of that that sound is creating itself and sound being creation helps me tether it back to something all the more um, true and not get lost, as I probably will do shortly, in all of the wonderful things people can say about what a person's experience with sound might be. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a good way of putting it. And that's definitely interesting. I guess now I want to ask you is like, how would you describe sound? Like what is sound? Vibration. Sound is vibration. Sound is creation. Sound is an invitation to appreciate stillness and silence. And I'm going back to our previous conversations and my previous uh, explorations of this same thread and how excited I get at suddenly telling people the thing that I've just realized or just found out or just been taught and that uh, naive enthusiasm that goes along with that. Me getting lost in the bigger picture uh, or holding myself up to this tiny little fact that I think is really important for someone else to understand. In so many cases, not all cases, in so many cases, I've really come to honor the, the truth that our work with sound, our creation with sound, should really be an invitation to understanding silence and that it leads people, perhaps in this instance, to a place of meditation by offering them a distraction from uh, the onslaught of their thoughts and this 
constant challenge to suddenly try and not think. And in doing so, provide them with a less confronting, let's say, way of observing themselves and their thoughts and their feelings and their reactivity in a place of stillness and silence. So that's what sound is to me. So sound itself is sort of the invitation or like priming for that silence because obviously sound itself is experienced through your ears and, you know, other places in your body as well, but it is not the silence itself. It is the invitation to the silence after the sound. And before the sound. Sure. Invitation <laughs> to be with silence at any point. It's sort of the, yeah. the yang, I guess, in a way. And, and truly, you know, we think we're searching for silence outside of ourselves. And the thing that we have to appreciate a sense of silence in is, is within ourselves. So sometimes we have to offer people the um, the guidance of how to sit in a place of safety and vulnerability in this silence that emerges from these practices. Mm-hmm. And of course, a lot goes into the to the sound making too, and it's a beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. But sometimes when I hurtle through a Ninety-minute sound meditation, and want to show people all the beautiful sounds that are available to us and the beautiful instruments. I forget that there's this moment that has to emerge in which we all get to sit and honor like the silence that can be created, and it's the diligence and, and perhaps craftsmanship that goes along with that, the guardianship. Uh, that holds someone's hand through the process of eventually sitting in a place of silence, I think is important and then guides people back to themselves. Mm -hmm. So would you in some regard parallel that to like the practice of yoga then when you're doing essentially movement and breathing so that you get to the restful silence of Shavasana and creating that con contrast so that then you are, in this state of silence and stillness? It, completely. Um, I'm a student of this, so I can't speak particularly comprehensively to it, but a lot of the practice that I've been taught and have continued to learn from, it stems from the practice of Nada Yoga. Mm. And so meditating on the silence through the lens of sound and music initially is it's a direct correlation. And um, I remind myself and anyone who will listen that it behooves us to, to look toward the, um, the cultural and traditional ramifications of this practice. Oftentimes in this little Instagram era where, or, fascinated by like the latest instruments and the latest way of talking about something and the latest science that somehow proves something that our body already knows. But this is really fundamental stuff that goes back thousands of years. If we just allow ourselves to be open and patient and listen to what's already there. Yeah, no, that definitely resonates. And so one of the other things I've been learning a lot about lately is light and light like sound is essentially a frequency 
that can sort of organize our deepest cellular experience. And, you know, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, we have relied upon light, worshiped the sun, all of these things. And now, you know, we sit inside, wear sunscreen, look at computers until late at night and kind of realizing like how off our off the track of our sort of natural wisdom and our bodies, you know, they know what we need and what to do, but our mind can sort of override that and, and sort of take us off course. And I imagine it's much the case with the experience of sound and developing that, that relationship. So the initial sort of, uh, event we'll say that made me want to get back in touch with you and, and record specifically was I was doing a series of pretty deep meditations and in preparation for an MDMA session, which I've never done before. Um, and one of them, I was getting pretty deep into it, but I just noticed my mind would not let go. And spontaneously, I just started making sound. I just started humming and that turned into singing and that turned into just a vocal exploration. And I, one, it felt amazing. I could feel it up and down my spine and my body, like the sort of vibration, the frequency. And then I also really noticed that my mind just totally took a seat on the sideline and just didn't put up any more fight, wasn't trying to sink its claws into anything. And our house cleaner was actually here at the time. And I would normally be really self-conscious because I'm objectively not a very good singer, but I just like went for it and like let loose. And it just, it felt very liberating. It felt very opening in my body, but I was really struck by, I was like, wow, sound is what takes you beyond the mind. It was like, it just felt like so clear that surrendering to sound was the path beyond the mind. And that makes sense with what you were sharing about then going into silence and you've kind of got this primed state to listen and exist and be in. Mm. Mind has been sort of, mm. I don't want to say silenced because that sounds almost aggressive. It's because it's a very gentle surrendering of the mind to the sound. And, and so I've been playing with this, you know, sound vocalizing. I have one, crystal bowl and things like this and just like it's been really really piqued my interest and there was another intuitive thing i used to be in a lakota sound song circle and their songs are very much these like they're not real words they don't generally have names they're almost like a rhythmic chant prayer basically of some sort and so even the learning of them you don't learn the words it's like you just have to listen and like receive it into your body and kind of learn the rhythms and repeat it. And, and it's a really unique experience. And I came back to like singing some of those Lakota songs that I had learned uh, with a Lakota teacher. And there was just something bringing me back to this vibrational sound field and the sort of liberation and yeah, taking me essentially beyond the mind. And so share what mm -hmm. Of that. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's a dream to hear you talk about this on lots of levels and I have goosebumps all over my body because speaking about the uh, 
our own practice from a, a vocal perspective, it, it's it's so dear to my heart for lots of reasons that maybe we'll get into. <clears throat> but the biggest part that resonates for me is that you did this through a place of discovery as opposed to um, uh, a prescriptive approach where someone was like, if you do this, you will experience this. Because mm -hmm. the more we overlabor words, I, even as a practitioner, the more I say to a group of people, if you do this thing, you're going to get this end result. It goes back to this Western mindset of a transaction that or you feed you the information and you get the thing you need or you don't. And there's a binary judgment either way. And so that place of surrender you talk about and that guiding yourself into a place of liberation with your own voice, particularly for anyone. And there's many of us, you, who have been made to feel one way or another that our voice is not a good one or our singing voice is not the perfect pitch or doesn't find a place of harmony. I truly believe like the deeper I get into this work and field, setting ourselves free using our own voices is both, you know, a psychologically liberating thing to do but there is deep medicine uh, available for us in the power of our own voice, whether we think we're in tune or we think we're able to hold a note or not. Because on a, perhaps on a more uh, primitive basis, on an ancient basis, there wasn't someone who was leading a choir of people to find this perfect voice. They were, we were all just generating noise and seeing what happened, seeing how our body resonated. We probably didn't talk about it <clears throat> those two years ago because I probably wouldn't have got there yet. But there's an amazing voice called, uh, I'm sorry, an amazing uh, book called um, The Humming Effect by Jonathan Goldman. Uh, I'm not sure if you, if I've probably DM'd you <laughs> this in the past because I certainly have sent it to a lot of people. It is the most beautiful, powerful exploration of what really emerges when we're humming on both a you know, musical and sound level, but also on a scientific basis of what is really uh, what we're generating um, for ourselves when we intentionally hum. And even just to take it to a more uh, basic level and fundamental exploration that hum, and I'll say this often in the guidance I offer at sound meditation, that hum has been heard in our ears and in our body for since we were babies, perhaps before we were even born. It's this sound of deep reassurance and relaxation and is enough between a mother and a baby, which you'll know well, and a father and a baby, to be able to bring a place of um, harmony, uh, almost in the, in the very moment it's first initiated. And so for ourselves, when we gather ourselves to be able to just hum alone individually there is this really incredible relationship with the vagus nerve um that we're sort of able to instruct our body that we're in a place of vulnerability and and openness and and softness and move into this place of rest and digest quite easily not because we're listening to sound external to us but listening to the sound of our own body our own voices um 
which is just, you know, it's the perfect way to begin any meditation practice, really. Uh, thinking about how that really operates and going back to that conversation around entering a place of silence and why it's so difficult because we're really not asking about silence externally, it's silence internally. Because our lives in these days operate on such a highly stimulated level, it's more comfortable for our body and mind to keep in that stimulated space. So the confrontation comes when we suddenly close the door and expect ourselves to be okay in silence and stillness. And I think the hum is this bridge between. It allows us to gradually, as you said, soften and soften and soften to a place in which silence is not threatening. Our body has been forewarned that we're about to bypass that thinking mind that is constantly looking outside of itself for things to occupy uh, how we react to potential danger and threat. And I was reading about this a little while ago that what that hum is, is creating, it's pulling down into our body the energy that previously would be feeding our mind. When you think about how much, I keep on using the term think, if we observe how much the thinking mind needs energy to keep going, to keep all of that stuff rumbling around in our, in our heads, to slowly gather that energy back down, right down into our gut, which is why it's so beautiful to be able to talk about it from the place of uh, the vagus nerve and vagal tone. We're really able to observe softly this hum embracing all parts of our body right down to our gut, it goes down through the vocal cords, touching the heart, the lungs, each major organ into the digestive system and into the gut. And so we think about this place of all of what the mind previously was taking and shifting the balance down into this place of our body really getting to experience the fullness of uh, where it is, how it is. Everything we previously fed to the mind is now sitting down here. So our body is able to really uh, process the entire experience as opposed to just uh, a thoughtful framework of, of where we are. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I think of is like, that might not be pleasant all the time for everyone. If our body is needing to process what we have not been able to process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I would say that this, this humming work, um, because it's so different to what a lot of people have come to expect, that it is just about an auditory experience. And when we use our body and remind ourselves there's a place of active participation, which is not just about lying down in an environment and hoping for the best and whatever comes to our ears is what the process is. That remains a very, very heady experience. Yeah. The purpose is to really begin to appreciate and open up to the idea that our body is a complete listening device 
that all of us, each part of us is receiving information, stimulation all the time. And so as we allow our body uh, the space to be able to appreciate intentional sound and vibration as opposed to just what it manages to absorb through the day unintentionally, it can be a powerful opener for people. Um, it's a really embodied practice that is so far beyond what I think oftentimes is referred to as, you know, even saying mindful is still up here somewhat. Yeah. Our whole body gets to benefit. And as you say, it can be a disorienting or slightly threatening experience for some people if it's not guided purposefully. And uh, I, I, uh, I'll talk often about why the importance of someone who is creating sound is there to really guide that experience as clearly as possible, as opposed to just bring a few instruments and, and you know, maybe create some music or sound, but not necessarily help articulate to each participant what it is that whole body could be experiencing. Yeah. And I'd, I'd want to get into the, that sort of, you know, your training and what you learn and what that guidance looks like as well. So I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with um, humming in terms of helping with the vagus nerve to some degree. And there's a fair bit of like information out there around that. Um, for myself in like January, I basically had a bit of a crash and burn dislike total system collapse like couldn't handle anymore um and my nervous system was just you know never super solidly built i realized and so i've kind of entered into the process of of rebuilding this from the ground up and and the teacher of that i i really do like and it's been an amazing program and she even says like you know when you're in these deep states like humming may not help to start with it's like she doesn't save she saves it till like out of a 12 week course later like 6 7 8 weeks into it um because there's all of this kind of like foundational stuff to build up and you know i'm like oh let's get to the humming let's get to the breath stuff you know like but it was really allowing this much more subtle groundwork that allowed some of those practices to be able to you know come in essentially mm -hmm. and you know, I think even the most sort of like blocked off, shut down person is going to receive these frequencies via sound in, a, in an experience. But now as you're talking and I'm thinking about my recent experiences, you know, and there's like this component of like being open enough and intentionally receiving the sound. Because, you know, you mentioned like the sound we just kind of absorb during the day. A lot of that is like threat perception sound. Like, okay, there's a loud thing. There's a big truck. There's a loud music. There's, I got to turn my music up because now I'm in the gym and there's loud music and everyone's clanging weights or whatever. You know, there's like this weird moderation of like survival sound management <laughs> versus, yeah. okay, I'm going to lie here and spread my arms and legs wide in a vulnerable position and i'm going to receive the sound and for me like there was a almost like a clenched off nervous system lever or something in my body that i was not able to receive that sound mm. to the 
Well, I don't know. Maybe I wasn't able to feel it to the degree I was receiving it. If that mm. Yeah. And so then I'm like thinking about previous um, like ceremonies with like ayahuasca or something where, you know, the shaman and his team are highly musically trained. It's such a vital part, the chanting and the songs and the very specific instruments they choose. And, you know, I remember one ceremony specifically where it was like a very open creative experience for me. And I remember like, the shaman's like chants, like going down to like the cell that he's living mm. with the sound and re and kind of really deeply experiencing what is actually happening sound mm. in my body in this very open state, essentially. And so over this last week, you know, that meditation I mentioned to you, I was like, there was, I was in this open state and then I started to you know, generate sound and vibration and frequency and really experience it with conscious awareness in a mm. level. Opened me up. And then um, leading up to the end of last week, I did this MDMA session and it was extremely somatic. And because of the last couple of weeks of this singing and chanting and humming and sound making, I just totally went into that for a huge chunk of this and it was like helping me release, uh, regenerate, like reset my whole system. And so I guess what I'm getting at is, and I'm curious about is like, you know, receiving this sound either from ourselves or a practitioner, hopefully a skilled practitioner, how much of that reception or impact of that is affected by how open we are to really experience that. I'm called to remind myself of that quote from Rick Rubin's book around uh, to listen is to suspend disbelief. Mm -hmm. We're pretty conditioned, uh, I think, to believe that sound is just this auditory experience that just something coming into our ears and you know maybe stays there for a moment then it's gone i think the reminding ourselves or reconnecting to a truth that sound is so much more and requires this part of us that is really about our imagination to know on one level that our body being this receiving device knows where sound and vibration is needed. So we perhaps on one level don't really need to do much more than just pay attention and listen. But on another level and perhaps another field of consciousness, that saying of where our attention goes, energy flows. I make it a suggestion it's not so much a requirement to guests that because they're this active participant in the experience or because they're reminded they're an active participant. Yeah, sure, you can lie there, go to sleep if you want, because maybe that's what you need at a moment in time. But if you really want something from this experience, if you're prepared to put the work in, listen with intentionality and yourself believe that 
where you have a place of tension or pain or where you feel like the sound would most be beneficial to explore that by believing or suspending disbelief that sound is only just this auditory experience and taking sound where you need it in that moment and seeing what happens. How about if we were to just believe that sound and vibration when created in an intentional setting could heal us or could create space or could unblock the previously unblockable parts of our trauma. Yeah. There is a place in this in which it requires us to have the naivety or innocence of a child that that story that we were told was true, but is not just about a story. It's about us making that magic real. And so I think sometimes, okay, there's going to be loads of scientific data and reports and this thing that's going to tell us that sound has the ability through its incredible frequencies to, let's say, cure cancer. Even if that was the case, and you put two people side by side, there was one person who believed it and there was one person who didn't. I would imagine that the person who believed that sound had a, a, a opportunity to heal them would be the one that would get the best results because they were willing and adding a layer of intention to that experience that they themselves wanted to heal as opposed to just passively accept the status quo. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's what I'm called to say. It does in some way. And it takes me like a step further, I guess, because with the relevance of the sort of psychedelic uh, substances, it's really pulling back that veil of belief in a way that allows you to go into that more receptive place beyond more more the unconscious mind, because I think even in your two examples, you may have somebody who says they believe it, but in an unconscious place, they actually don't believe it. And then you may have somebody who truly believes it in their mind and body. And I would agree that probably that person is going to have far more benefit from sound in this example. Absolutely. Um, it's a really... I come back to this thing of it has to be a relationship between all people involved. It needs to be a relationship between the participant, the, the guide, the meditation practitioner, the um, facilitator, and a conscious awareness of the relationship between the instruments itself, the sound, and the space in which they're in. You know, all of these things need to be in a place of um, uh, coherence for them to have any chance of really working, let's say. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just an adventure and discovery, which is also totally fine. But when we come to a place of realization, there is something deeper at work if we want it, if we want to put that level of inquiry and intention behind it. Yeah. Yeah, it's and it's super interesting because I guess like that sense of belief and what that opens you up to. 
I mean, it seems like from what I understand, from what I've read and watched, you know, even if somebody's getting chemotherapy, if they really believe it's going to work, the cancer is more likely to go away, let alone like diet, sound, you know, some of these more natural tools that we have access to. Um, But the thing that really I bump up against is like, it's that unconscious block, you know, and it's like, Without, you know, I guess my experience has been like doing a lot of work and chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, um, and then using something like a, like a substance or a psychedelic or whatever, at times will allow that to sort of dissolve the last layers of that sort of block. And for me, that has been a huge benefit, especially in this last week. Um, and so without that substance, my feeling is that that would have just taken a lot longer, but it's through the discipline and through working with something like sound and frequency and light, it's mm. going to erode that unconscious belief slowly mm. um, with some level of commitment and intentionality, like you said, but I still feel like there's probably a lot of people that are like, I really want to heal or feel better. I believe in my mind, it makes sense that sound would help. Yet there's something beneath that that's like, I don't deserve to heal better. If I actually was healed, you know, how scary would that be? You know, mm. like unconscious stuff that I feel like is is usually what's probably holding people back from their intellectual belief becoming an embodied belief. Totally. And because we've used this phrase now, or you just did, but I probably said it, I believe in my mind that this will work. That person, and this goes for most of us, many of us, is still listening to their mind full of thoughts as a way of exploring their reality. What we're suggesting to people to do with practice, and I really do recommend to people to to see a sound experience or seek out a sound experience that can be a fulfilling practice once a week, once every two weeks, once every month, to notice what changes within them from the first time they sit to the second time to the third time how much easier it becomes to stop listening to the thoughts that are controlling our experience and begin to softly listen to what else emerges in their own body. A place in which we direct people to feel into their experience from their heart as opposed to what their head is telling them. I use this phrase often at the end of meditation with folk when we're coming out of our experience, which is all to do with noticing perhaps for the first time in a while, this vibration of our own heartbeat. When we're not panicked and we're not thinking about how our heart is racing because we've had to run for the bus or the train or whatever, but to really feel for the vibration of our own heart. And using these words of 
behind every word that we speak. There is a thought behind every thought that we think there is a breath. And behind every breath that we take, there is a heartbeat. And noticing what can occur for us when we bring that level of judicious awareness right down to where it all came from, the beating of our heart, changes something, even in me saying those words now, that if we're able to go on such a microscopic level towards where intention and belief and awareness can come from, it changes the game for how we consider ourselves, how we see ourselves, how we discern truth from not truth. I think when people talk about heart-centeredness, that's really what's being said or suggested. There is this strange reliance on the way that our mind works when we allow ourselves to come right back down to the place it all began. Feels like a, a better way for me of exploring what I do or don't believe or what I can remind myself to generate in my own being, in my own way of communicating with people, in my own way of uh, listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, where do we go from here? Well, you know, what made me, what you made me think of when when you're talking about that and like returning to the heartbeat as the sort of like kind of our center you know um it's kind of like i mean i view our sort of our heart a spiritual heart as like the eternal part of us the unbreakable part of us um you know that's patiently waiting for us to return to it essentially in this lifetime hopefully and yeah, the frequency and and that um, that we grow from, because really we grew in our mother's womb connected to her heart. And it was that rhythm and sound that kind of breathed us alive in a way. Uh, mm. And that rhythm, you know, is something we could rely on and feel safe connected to. And it makes me wonder as well, like, if the mother is, um, you know, stressed out and her heart is kind of stressed out and that rhythm is um, not as healthy, you know, what is that signaling to, mm. um, you know, anywhere along the process? Maybe this isn't a safe place to be and maybe let's not come out <laughs> or, you know, maybe there's, it's safe enough and you go through that process and then you're, you're in the world. Um, but yeah, that heartbeat is like, you know, our heartbeat, but we even grew from another heartbeat. And so it's like, that is sort of our deepest, I mean, drumbeat, you know, like our, our life is, is coming through that mm. deep way. And you know, something I've worked with is uh, like heart math. And that is all about achieving that coherence with that heart, you know, bringing the mind specifically into coherence with the heart, because it feels like if the mind was totally out of the way, 
our whole body and all of our cells would be attuned to that frequency of the heart. And it mm -hmm. has the ability to disrupt that pathway or frequency or attunement. And so whether it's something like heart math or attuning to sound and allowing that into our bodies allows the mind to play more of its appropriate role of supporter rather than in the driving seat. Uh, yes, so much yes to that. You know, my teacher, David, will talk about this phrase, uh, its provenance, I don't know, but he'll refer to our practice with the gong as, as, as integral to some of this, particularly when it comes to people with very busy minds. And of course, you know, here I am in New York where everyone comes into a sound meditation at the end of the day, expecting miracle results. And I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> time to bring out the gong. There's a, there's a, there's an anecdote that's probably longer. And uh, again, I don't know its provenance. Um, that is simply repeated as the mind has no defense against the gong, right? And oftentimes we'll use this beautiful orchestra of various different instruments from like the tiniest, twinkliest little koshi chime through to uh, Shruti box and Himalayan bowls and lots in between our own voices. And it's the gong that will be most supportive in that place of as you say, not silencing the mind because it sounds quite heavy handed, but allowing our whole being to surrender. Uh, our mind is furiously trying to work out all of the potential rhythms, hazards, like harmonic series. It wants to know the solution. We, our mind is geared to thinking about the past and using the past as a framework for what it's experiencing in the moment. And beyond that, also wishing and hoping for some sort of outcome to arrive. It gets hung up on melody, which is why we don't typically use melody so much in sound meditation. We're trying to give the mind something else to uh, experience beyond what our mind can often find itself doing, which is acting as a calculator, sorting through all of the different rhythms and frequencies and harmonic series to come to a solution on its own. We're really trying to get away from is that the solution is not there. There's nothing to work out. There is just surrender, as you say. And the gong has this beautiful way of being able to create that space for us that all of a sudden the mind just gives up all of those little parts of it that are like furiously trying to come up with this uh, sheet music to our experience. So everything's carefully and clearly notated. There's no defense against the gong. And so we enter this space of, to use your words, actually, you know, moving out of the driver's seat and into this place of just experiencing itself, which is where the fullness of our, our mind comes into being. That it's not just this furiously thinking part of our mind, but all of also this expansive, imaginative, curious place in which 
we get to experience ourselves on a different level that we're not so tied to solution making and and listing out the things we have or haven't done because that's what it does in its day job if you like and so giving ourselves that time to just soften and our mind to be at peace which is the thing that i think people are really searching for we have no real skills in how to to do it i was reading this uh i i'm a student of gurdjieff i'm a student of his students of gurdjieff and there is this beautiful piece of writing around impressions you think about all external stimulation as impressions and that there are basically three ways in which two ways in which the human body has evolved to be able to experience life uh, effectively and one that we haven't yet evolved to be able to experience life effectively we can't do without them we need them the first is air we need air to breathe but the human body has evolved to be able to process that air breathe out carbon that it doesn't need the second is to eat. So we're able to eat and the human body has evolved to be able to let go of what it doesn't need. The third is impressions. We need to be stimulated. We need to be stimulated from birth. As you know, as a father, we need to be able to experience life around us. Yet we have not yet evolved to be able to process from the very beginning of our life to process those impressions and let go of the things we don't need. So here we are at our age with a life full of impressions, some of which we're still holding on to, some of which we can't separate ourselves from because our body and our mind and our being has not evolved to be able to extract the things it doesn't need. The more I've delved into that side of the work, the more I've realized that part of what evolves for us in sound meditation or practices with sound is that it's kind of like an extraction device. Mm -hmm. Our body is in the moment as we sit in this place of safety, vulnerability, openness let go of the impressions it's received in a day or a week or a month that as sound moves through us and as sound and vibration creates space in us in our body in our mind those places of tension and blockages get softly i don't want to say the word removed they let go of they get let go of and I think it's one of the most important things we can consider in this field of work, that with a little bit of trust and a little bit of imagination and a little bit of commitment, we can be a part of that evolutionary cycle, not saying it's evolving us as a human race, but our awareness of what sound and vibration can do is displacing how much our mind holds on to the impressions it receives 
and create space for what comes next. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I had this like visual of myself when I was doing the singing and, and making these sounds of like all the old stuff like caked on to my core, you know? And it was like, if that was like a metal rod, just like hitting that with a hammer, the vibration of that would loosen a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And I would be invited to, you know, let it go or let it dissolve, like, you know, and it, so I feel that's what it feels like the sound and vibrations and frequencies are doing within me. It's like loosening that, that material and content to be let go of and to be washed away. And, you know, that could be done with more sound. Um, But yeah, that, so that makes a lot of sense in terms of it being something to help us process these impressions that we've held on to unnecessarily. Mm. So I want to ask you about, um, you know, receiving sound via someone like yourself with instruments and voice versus creating the sound ourselves with our own voices. Um, I guess like ultimately it's our cells and tissues are receiving these frequencies, whether it's from the inside or from the outside. But I'm curious to know or hear your perspective on like what the difference is. Mm. There's two really important parts to this. And I feel like I've said that a lot through this conversation. I always have like two answers and then the second one I don't get. (laughs) (laughs) When I first began my training, I remember being given a little nugget of information that has probably become one of the most important uh, foundational layers for me, that we have two ways of listening. We're only really conscious of one. First is that we're listening through this auditory uh, device, our ears. To give people an awareness and to remind myself that we listen in two ways. When we speak, or when we hum, that sound is not reaching us really through our ears. It's reaching us through uh, bone and skin conduction. And anyone at home can test this by humming out loud, just as we normally would, and then softly placing your fingers on the inside of your your ears, not plugging your not plugging your ears with your fingers, but just holding down the uh, little bits in the middle of your ears. I don't know what they're called. And humming again and hearing almost exactly the same sound. To answer really your question, both things exist at the same time. That creating sound ourselves and feeling the benefit of the awareness of our body internally processing sound, all sound that is made in the body is heard here through this incredible complex system, which channels sound and vibration around our body. And come to think of our body as almost uh, a living, uh, breathing version of the greatest temples, cathedrals, religious spaces that are created with a level of acoustic perfection to be able to channel sound all around them. 
so is our body. If you listen to anyone who's got real experience talking about how the sound that ohm is created, that it's channeled initially from the belly to the solar plexus and heart and finishes in the vocal cords and we feel this hum on our lips but the sound has traveled all the way through our body and so this idea of conducting sound internally and noticing where that resonates most powerfully is crucial to be able to then receive sound and this is where i think it's really interesting that as we create sound ourselves, whether it's a hum or whether it's something that's slightly more chaotic or just free ranging, we're sharpening our tools of auditory perception, particularly with the hum though, we're placing ourselves in a place of relaxation in that place of relaxation, our auditory canal widens to a place that we're actually able to anticipate a greater spectrum of sound than previously available to us. And so pairing both of these things together, whilst it lengthens the time in which someone might come to a sound meditation, because oh, I've got to 10 minutes of humming in order to get to the good stuff. But it's all it, it's a valid protocol and process that eventually allows us to be able to um, discern the smallest or most nuanced of sounds somewhere else in the room. It allows us to be able to appreciate the layers of overtones and harmonics that are created in these more precise instruments, uh, like Himalayan bowls, for instance. But we're not just listening any longer to the fundamental tone that we previously heard or that our ears first appreciate, but to the minute layers of sound that can really take us into a completely different direction that allow us to awaken a place of awe and wonder that I think is one of the most beneficial of the healing implications of working with sound. One of the things missing in our lives is a place of awe and wonder and curiosity that to go back once again to your fatherhood and your nine month old baby, you probably see this so often this gaze or complete fascination in the present moment as your baby is experiencing something for the very first time, yet they get to do that every day or every minute. There is something new all the time. And we're both sitting here with all of our years of experience and adulting where we're like, I don't know, it takes like something really big to happen, like your, just, your experiences you just had <clears throat> to shift our sense of perception into a place of wonder and it's it's the it's our working to create a place of displacement of what is known and what is already experienced replace that with a place of awe that opens up this space inside of us where we prove to ourselves that there is more available and so listening deeply to those sounds that we talked about that's where the all comes. That's where the all comes in. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It's like the the mind has to quiet for the awe to come in. It has to, or at least shift out of that like threat perception mode, I guess, ultimately. And um, 
Yeah, it's super interesting. So there's a there's a series on Gaia TV called the Sound of Creation, I think, it's like ten episodes. I started watching it this weekend. Um, some super interesting stuff. And there is one woman who is a sound healer practitioner. One with a crystal didgeridoo. Yeah. <laughs> Another one, you mean? <laughs> uh, I just thought the didgeridoo is something I'd never even thought about in this kind of space. Uh, mm. Not as common in, in North America, for one, um, at least in my experience. But it was super interesting to hear her and, and talking about these brainwaves and these deep meditative type brainwaves that certain monks can get to after, you know, decades of practice. And she could only get there while playing the didgeridoo. Mm -hmm. and it, oh, well, yeah, because the instrument and these vibrations and the voice are taking you beyond the mind. So it can be completely surrendered into that space of awe and creativity, like you're saying. And that's mm -hmm. where novel things come from is like that field of not the assumed reality that we live so much of our time in, I guess, is like remembering like, oh, there's so much going on. So many things we haven't experienced. Like the invitation to live every day like a baby is kind of here, like you know, there's trees. I've never looked at their leaves outside my window. You know, like I could go look at something I've never seen and experience it for the first time today. And there's mm. for that. But again, it's like allowing our mind to relax so that we have the openness to step into that awe and level that, that sort of perception, I guess. And sound is, seems to me, especially with my recent experiences, which is kind of also triggered my awareness around past experiences where I didn't necessarily connect what was happening as comprehensively to be like, oh, right. There was this sound happening. There was this, I was making this experience, this was part of it was the sound. Mm. It's like, I've connected a lot of old dots along with these new experiences with a different awareness where I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. This really is a beautiful magical doorway into mm -hmm. much wider you know place to perceive and experience everything really <laughs> it is about perception and it's also about a deep remembering as you say like we have an opportunity to see each moment as a baby word but we get conditioned to believe otherwise and think about what needs to happen next rather than sitting in the present moment. And I really believe that sound is here to remind us of the present moment because it can't exist in the past and it doesn't exist in the future. It is actually mirroring the exact moment in time in which we hear it. Can't, can't be either other, either of the other side. Well, that said, I was thinking recently, like listening to like an album from the seventies, like, wow, this sound was created <laughs> that's true someone else tried to pull me up on that on that little uh phrase that i came up with you can only and, and yet it's recorded right you know there's this thing of uh, my appreciation i suppose um of live sound is so vastly different than it was before i started trading in this field 
as I say, I was just back home a couple of weeks ago and uh, going on my typical nostalgia trip and looking through photos and just reminding myself of what it felt like to be a kid. And I, there's a couple of parts to this again. But when I was a child, I was you know a musician and I played like the trombone and trumpet and the violin. And for whatever reason, at that time in my life, there are all these stickers and all of the instrument cases that the school must have put on there. And it's something it's said something along the lines of keep music live. And it must have been the day when the advent of CDs, I suppose, or I don't know why someone was getting so annoyed that lots of music suddenly wasn't going to be live. But it took me back to this place of not finally understanding why it's so important. Music on any, any level, as much as like, yeah, let's reproduce it just as we'll reproduce this conversation. It'll be shared digitally. Nothing beats the original. And for that in person experience where we are not just listening but we are feeling vibration a whole world can open up inside us i bet if you were to hear that lady's crystal didgeridoo from the gaia docuseries in person it would be a vastly different experience because our our heart just like when we're in a club right <laughs> in the old days <laughs> Our body feels the vibration from like the speakers or in in the moment in a concert hall, our body comes into direct resonance with the sound it's feeling and hearing. Um, and I have so many thoughts about where that takes me as it, as it pertains to being a kid and growing up in a particular musical environment. Um, which may be part of our conversation point three. <laughs> if you'll have me back. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I love this sort of evolution of this conversation. I guess the thing that, that comes to me when you talk about live sound, which I do agree is a different experience. Um, it feels like what is added in some way is a deeper level of connection whether I'm sitting in front of you playing an instrument and receiving it, we are connected. Whereas like, if I'm listening to that song from 50 years ago, it was created, that person experienced it. Now I'm here experiencing it. There's not that same level of connection. And so then when you have a room of people in a club or in one of your studios experiencing it, there's that level of connection and resonance in the present moment with more than just yourself. Mm. that place of resonance that place of collective harmony i'm struggling with a phrase that i use sometimes that was first shared by this guy daka keltner a while ago in his book about the science of awe um when we experience something on a collective level like that, which takes us to almost exactly the same place that our bodies, our minds, our heart is beating as one, that is the most beautiful uh, experience that we can collectively feel into. It breaks apart barriers it changes how we see and feel each other. It's so vital that as human beings, we get to explore something that is beyond words. And sound can invite us into this place of just experiencing ourselves and experiencing a, um, 
the collective that it reminds me sometimes why I even do these sound meditations is in the gathering, it's in the community. And sometimes I feel like, yeah, I guess all these people could come and we could all do individual private practice and sit there and do a sound meditation or a sound healing to use oftentimes the words that are shared. But people are drawn to these collective experiences. And what emerges for us is just a, is a softening that I truly feel and definitely didn't feel back in September 2021 when we last spoke. I didn't understand that that was the nature of what was drawing people together, that yes, it was the sound and it was the idea of mindfulness and perhaps for some people this idea of healing. But it is the finding our way back to being able to be with each other and exploring what emerges knowing that a part of this is about collective healing. Going back to perhaps your experience with ayahuasca and certainly with mine, nothing informed me more of the importance of this route towards societal uh, healing is a word perhaps the medicine that is in community and gathering is one of the most profound things. So regardless of what people might have initially expected coming into any of these experiences, what they actually receive is an understanding of being in community. I think that is part of union. That is part of yoga. But none of this really is for the individual to continue seeing themselves as an individual, but something so much more connected. Yeah, I think that is a really beautiful point and something so easy to forget. Um, and I think like choosing to go into those group settings, there's a level of vulnerability that allows you to connect, like more, you might be more vulnerable or feel more vulnerable in a class with 12 people than doing a one-on-one -on -one session with just yourself, right? So I think- mm -hmm you're choosing to go into that and choosing to open up in this space with some strangers that you don't know um, that again, like adds to that, like amplifies the, that sort of connection group experience, part of something greater. And I think that kind of goes for anything because that it's making me think of like doing running in a group versus running by myself, which most, mm -hmm. but when I've done some group programs and workshops, there's a really, beautiful level of coherence and shared experience and i have one memory from last year that's one of my favorite memories of the year and that's in a year where i had a son and moved into a house and and it was during a workout when me and two other guys were doing mile repeats and we were like completely silent running pretty hard for a mile and you could just hear each other's breath footsteps birds you know running through a park and i was like oh yeah like that was like amazing that was and you know i did a bunch of races and accomplished some decent things last year but that memory stands out above them all as something just so special and pure and connected to you know all these things like we're talking about and you know sound being part of that with the the breath and the footsteps and the 
the nature. Mm. Uh, so yeah. Collective effervescence is the term that I will kick myself if I don't remember to say. When we come together and experience these moments, as you and your two friends would have, the sound of your feet on the ground and the birds and the trees and your breath, and you're all hearing the same thing. And it's so powerful to be able to experience and then articulate those group experiences. Yeah. Yeah, it's special. And it definitely makes me feel like, okay, I need to orchestrate more of that. Um, this last year, you know, while I'm feeling very deeply connected to uh, Natalie and Jack Aranda, um, it's been a bit isolating in terms of being here in our house a bit outside of LA raising the baby and that has been what's needed for this period. And so I'm grateful that I've been at home to do that, but now it's like, okay, yes, a little bit more community, a little bit more connection and through, you know, breath sound movement really like galvanizes and amplifies that group experience. Yeah. We've got to get you out to New York so you can do a few things at Sage and Sound as well. I think well, definitely I'm like overdue for a New York trip. Totally. I don't even remember if you were ever here whilst I've been here. Probably, but we didn't. I don't think we. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. So I guess I've got one more question, except for it's sort of like a probably a beginning of a lot of questions and. Go on. Wrap up in the next fifteen or so, but so, I've got some instruments at home, right? I'm totally untrained musically in any capacity, I could get some people together. We could do breath work, meditate, and I could play a single crystal bowl. You know, my feeling is that might be irresponsible to some degree. You've obviously gone through a lot of training to do that sort of experience to guide people. You know, you use a wide variety of instruments and each one I imagine is like a you know, medical tool that may tend to certain things and achieve certain things and be experienced in specific ways. Um, so I'm curious, you know, as well as you can share, like why somebody should maybe not just, you know, take some instruments with a random group of people, or if that's okay. And mm -hmm. the key insights you've learned in your training and now as a practitioner in terms of how you manipulate and work with sound, with instruments, with a group of people going through an experience. Hmm. There's a part of me that would propose that no one sees themselves as the teacher with all the answers and that everyone sees themselves as a student of what their experience is with sound. I, it was made very, very clear to me by the teacher I continue to work with the longest that a lot of this has its foundations in what is intuitive, that the technique and the science and all of the intellectualizing can come afterwards that we just have to allow ourselves to listen to the sound we're creating notice ourselves what impact if any that's having on us 
and and share it. There was a time when I felt like I was giving sound meditations to people and every time I did one, or this didn't happen very often, but it happened enough for it to not be infrequent. That then someone would be like, oh, well, where did you train? I wanted to be a sound meditation teacher. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess everyone's going to be a sound meditation practitioner soon. And, you know, in a, in a way, I also see it as like a, a lovely compliment that the experience resonated so deeply for that person that they wanted to also create sound. There's a technical approach to how to work with a singing bowl if you want there to be. Or we just allow ourselves to make a sound with it and see what comes out of it. If we're not mixing it or combining it, let's say, with medicine, supplements, however we want to refer to them, to create sound with a group of friends, friends being the operative word, where there's a place of safety already and a place of uh, responsibility to each other and um, a willingness to make mistakes. Some of this is about noticing that music has sort of been hijacked by the musicians, by the professionals. As we talked about before, when you said about, I sat and I hummed and I started singing, it's inside of us all. And there is a pursuit and a thirst for knowledge and wisdom and all of the good stuff, which implies that finding a teacher Finding someone who's willing to guide you and share what they know uh, is important. But the biggest awakenings for me with sound and the instruments that I've used and, and you know, continue to collect is that they're not really my instruments. <laughs> like they teach me and having a willingness to sit with them and explore what sound can be created, not the sound that my teacher would have made, but the sound I can create with them, um, which is about patience and is a, a willingness to keep making mistakes until something sounds right. Not making mistakes always with people who have come and paid for a sound meditation, but to, <laughs> but to, to, to practice, to sit and create. And, um, you know, I think it's an interesting time because there is a lot of uh, attention being given to sound practice as a modality. And I see a lot of people, whether it's on Instagram or whatever, you know, talking about their sound baths and sound healing. And I also stop myself. And I think anything that brings people into an experience with sound is going to be beneficial. Um the tools that working with sound give to us as the recipient is that we, one would hope, gradually come to a place of discernment as opposed as to our how our body reacts to a certain stimulant, like how it reacts to a certain sound. All of the things that go on in a sound meditation are really to gear us to be able to live a more full and uh, expansive life outside of the studio or the practice room or wherever a sound meditation might take place. So the idea that one would stop themselves from hosting something like a sound experience uh, because you might feel that you would get it wrong 
it's a willingness of everyone to come together and experience that thing. And perhaps even in the initial sense, it's just breath and humming that you know you can do. And uh, one or two sounds that leads people towards remembering all we're really doing is guiding people to a central place of focus and awareness. And if it's just that one note on a crystal ball from the moment you strike it to the moment that sound dissipates, there's a glimpse of holding our present awareness, which is kind of the most vital gift that we can hope someone could take away from it. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. <laughs> so outside of the medicine space, it's uh, you can't do too much harm, really. <laughs> You can't do too much harm, especially if you're doing it. Oh, did you mute? Sorry, I was saying if your intention is good. Yeah, the intention that you put behind it is the important thing. Remembering that the beauty of creating a gathering is part of the medicine itself. Um, and I think there are some really good resources online. People can always come and ask me a question if, if they want to, if they were nervous as to what instrument to buy or where to start i'd certainly answer enough of those questions these days um but i you know i i think the most important part of it is always to know why it is that you want to do it in the first place like what is our intention going into it and we've certainly thought many times over the last few years what am i bringing of myself to this experience that is of benefit because we can talk about ourselves as musicians and craftsmen and that there is something deeper going on, but really the most important part of any of it is that you're holding space for someone who maybe just needs to be held in that moment. And not that sound becomes the backing track to their experience, otherwise we negate the purpose of sound being there. But if our intention is to bring people together, then be there for those people not for yourself as an artist. So people see you as a sound meditation practitioner. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. Um, yeah, what else? I mean, I feel like, yeah, there's probably a lot more. Uh, so this will probably be two of more. <laughs> but, we'll wait till uh, 2025 for the next installment. Yeah, maybe <laughs> we can do something in person before then. That'd be so good. I I was telling the team uh, that I'd love to have you up at our space, and uh, either way, I mean, I need to come to LA soon anyway, and um and get some time out there, mostly for the vitamin D needs. But uh, I've got some people to see, including including you. Um, hopefully, meet that little baba of yours. Yeah, definitely, that'd be awesome. I've got um, a recommendation for you actually for uh jacaranda. Jacaranda is that what I say? There's a really beautiful instrument called, um, uh, well, we call it a sansula. Other people might call it a kalimba. Do you know Do you know what it is? I have one. Oh, you have one? Okay. I feel like it's the perfect baby instrument and it is sent more than one baby to sleep playing it. Uh, so I'm glad you have one already. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Um, I ended up getting a, a drum, a handpan drum as well. And so I'll sit with him in front of it and he'll kind of like whack on that as well, which is pretty cute. 
Oh my God. Amazing. There's this kid on Instagram called Sonny. He's about five years old. He plays handpan better than almost anyone I know. And it makes me <laughs> realize that really what we're doing when we just give ourselves surrender to the idea of playing with instruments is we're just going back to that place of childhood discovery, right? The moment we begin to over-intellectualize and think it's all about the harmonic series and that it has to be this perfect ideal, we're, we're losing a part of the magic as a, as a practitioner that is play you know I think that's what my first teacher would tell me is like notice how it feels when you allow yourself the space and time to play like a child would because that's when we realize we're kind of we're creating with our heart not with our mind and when you see people who are in this field of uh, sound practice to use an umbrella term yes sometimes there is you know the most impressive musician and then there are sometimes the people who are just playing from the heart. Yeah. And that's where we begin to channel something that's so beyond this uh, intellectual self. That's where stuff really opens up for me when I realize I've let go enough to be able to just give in to the sound. Yeah. It's, it's challenging to get back there, but I do think that's key. And for me as someone who's been, you know, very hesitant or resistance in terms of getting back to that childlike play um, and especially with sound and vocals like it's finding those instruments like the sansula or the handpan drum that are quite forgiving like they sound pretty nice no matter how you play it and so for me that has allowed me to like surrender into the experience and play with it without being like, oh, I don't even know what this note is, right? But it's like, I can make sound with this and have fun with it and just allow that. And, and you know, the crystal bowl as well has been a great one because I'll play it and then I'll just make and make sound. I can sing a note, try and, you know, play with that. And it kind of drowns me out. So I'm a bit less self-conscious and also, you know, then I can gain more confidence. And it's been a great tool in terms of, myself and being like scared to step into that space to some degree to allow some room for play and mistakes and experiment totally i mean that's where that that's where the place of neuroplasticity that is about our mind and our mind working healthily is so important like how we get to observe this place of not always knowing the kind of liminal space that is like our childhood and our adult self and that place in between where our mind gets to explore and rewire itself in a way of who's who's the inner critic or is the inner critic there as we're creating sound in a way that we might feel like we're judging ourselves or waiting for someone to tell us that we've made the wrong note all of a sudden? What happens when that disappears and all we're doing is creating, which goes back to where we began this conversation of why I say creating sound, that I don't want to hold myself up to this ideal of everything is going to be complete perfection because that's sort of not what we're striving for. We're striving in a sound experience to bring people on a whole journey. Some of it is going to feel smooth and relaxing and easy, and some of it's going to feel dissonant, and some of it's going to feel uncomfortable. And it's the body and the mind's ability to come to a place of coherence and softly soothe itself, knowing that it's able to experience the good, the bad, and the bit in between. 
and come out the other end feeling that it has created a sense of calm from within rather than expecting it to come from somewhere outside. So vital. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it is very magical. All right, last question. You mentioned earlier about sand, sound healing cancer. Do you think that's possible? I think it probably could be. I would not be the person willing to be like, hey, come to my sound meditation and I will cure you of all of these things because I don't think anyone should hold themselves up to that. I think there are scientists doing incredible work to be able to prove the efficacy of something that was probably known a long time ago. Again, I come back to this place of sound is teaching us about what discernment is and maybe slowly but surely we're becoming aware that how that how that how those cancerous cells were awakened in the first place is something that perhaps sound can can be purposeful in understanding uh no you'll have to go back i don't want to talk about something to do with cancer i realize i'm end up thinking about my mom and i don't want to <laughs> I'm sorry. I wanted to give you a good answer. And I realized that my brain was going into a completely different direction. <laughs> I will say that I will say this to you. My, my mum died of cancer when she was, when I was 21, she was 47 and it'll be 20 years this year. It is my, it would, it's my greatest wish that I would have been able to create sound with her for her to be able to allay some of the suffering that she went through. Um, and that's why I get stuck in that conversation because I think there is so much that science can prove sound is able to do. And it's why I got so hung up on that particular thing of what our intention is that we bring to it as well, that we can keep trying to say that sound or frequency is going to heal something. When we take out the essential part of the person whose greatest wish it is to be healed and their own responsibility or commitment to being a part of that healing journey, that's where I think it begins to fall apart. I've seen YouTubes about how sound might be able to cure cancer. I don't want to be the person who says it will. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> I mean, I, be I believe that these frequencies have the, the ability, but we also have to, like you said, be that engaged participant in allowing them to do so. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your answers, all the parts of them. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to remember all the part twos as soon as I get off this call. Anyway, never mind. Thank you so much for the space to talk about this. You know, I love being able to experience even, you know, remotely your journey through all of these modalities and seeing what emerges for you and being able to be a part of these conversations every so often is really fulfilling for me. So I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate it as well. I love talking about this stuff and exploring and, you know, it's been great to, to share with you and hear your insights and thoughts and experiences too. Thank you.